there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T for C. I am so glad you press play. And if you're interested in building a career on Wall Street, then you will be too, because my next guest is the founder of the largest online community focused on careers in finance. But before I introduce you to Patrick Curtis, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's Time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out bright and early on Mondays and gives you an exclusive peek inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. And it is so easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And while you're on the homepage, I want to invite you to scroll down just a little bit until you see all the boxes where we've organized alphabetically the professions that we're featuring. So whether you're interested in architecture and design or the arts, theater and film, or of course, business and finance, you can click on that box. And in there, you'll find the interviews that we have with the professionals who most interest you. But who am I kidding? If you're interested in business and finance, you really want to go to Wall Street Oasis. But nevertheless, we might be a good first stop. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Patrick Curtis, the founder and CEO and chief monkey of Wall Street Oasis, also known as WSO. It's one of the largest and I promise you most entertaining online communities that's focused on careers in finance with over 25 million visits a year and at least 2 million posts to date. WallStreetOasis.com was initially launched way back in May 2006 when it was known as iBankingOasis.com, and it was a forum-based site for investment bankers and prospective monkeys. And Patrick is going to explain all about why they're called monkeys. As growth accelerated and as more professionals from a whole bunch of other industries joined from private equity, hedge funds, S&T, equity research, and on and on, Patrick decided to make them feel more welcome and change the name to WallStreetOasis.com. You can also check out WSO's YouTube channel and their podcast, as well as the Moving Up podcast with Alex Grodnick, who you may remember if you are a fan of Time for Coffee and you like to binge on all kinds of episodes. I actually interviewed Alex in T4C episode 230, 230. So if you haven't heard it, you can check it out. Patrick is also the chief learning officer of the IBP Institute, which are the providers of the investment banking professional credential. By the way, if you want to learn more about how to break into the world of Wall Street and finance, check out the show notes for this episode to see if Patrick's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. Remember, Espresso Shots are the 10 boilerplate questions I ask all my guests to help you learn how to break into their industry. Patrick, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Ready to go. Okay, good. And how many bananas have you had today? (laughs) Today, only one. (laughs) Just one. Okay. 
Okay. Well, maybe right out of the gate, we should kind of explain to our listeners and help them appreciate your wonderful sense of humor and why Wall Street Oasis identifies its members as monkeys or chimps, orangutans, and what the bananas are and that lovely little poop emoji that we find on your site. Sure. So um, initially when we started and we're deciding what to kind of the theme of the site, we, you know, there was a, a book called Monkey Business way back in the day where a lot of the investment bankers were referred to as monkeys because frankly speaking, they were people would always make a joke that a monkey could do this job. You'd just be hitting the keyboard and be there a hundred hours a week. And so you know, in honor of that book, in honor of just the idea of monkeys, we made the entire theme of the site monkeys. And along with that, instead of user points, we called them bananas. And so if you get points by contributing to the site, then you, you have bananas. And then there's also upvotes, which are called silver bananas. So if somebody likes what you're saying, they can reward you a silver banana and that's worth three banana points. Mm-hmm. And then if they don't like what you're saying, they can throw monkey shit at you and you lose the banana. <laughs> so... Oh. so that's uh, that's actually served us really well. I think people appreciated the lightheartedness of it, given that Wall Street and finance isn't always the most exciting or interesting topic to talk about. But I think it's it's been fun because people feel like they can have a little bit more fun on that platform. Absolutely. So before we get into how you became the chief monkey almost 15 years ago, how about if we talk about Wall Street Oasis mm-hmm. and the site? And what services you provide your over 700,000 members? So I think first off, it's really just a, a platform where people can come to meet other people who are trying to break into careers in finance. We call them perspective monkeys. And then um, the people who are act- or young finance professionals, people are typically, you know, just out of school up to, you know, five, 10 years out of school. So we have people all the way up through managing director, but the vast majority of the members on the site and the active members are college juniors and seniors who are just trying to figure out how to break in with their internships to several years out. So the community itself and the forums are all free. You can search the the forums of, I think it's over 300,000 discussions and millions of comments totally for free. So that's always open to the public. So if you have a specific question about a company you have an interview with, we're a great place to check out. And then in terms of the the paid resources, we do have courses like uh, an investment banking interview course, a private equity interview course, hedge fund interview course, and a management consulting. Those are the four kind of main pillar courses that we offer currently. And then we also have a mentor program where we'll match people up who, let's say you have an interview coming up in a few days and you're really nervous and you want to actually have a realistic mock interview, you can hire a mentor through us and say pay for a half hour just to get almost like a realistic trial run of an interview and they can give you feedback in terms of how to improve before kind of the, the real deal. And then we also offer a resume review service. And that's as it sounds, you would send in a kind of draft resume, we have an actual professional in your target industry review it and give you feedback in terms of how to improve it and they actually help you improve it. That's it. Great. I'm wondering, were you the first or among the first kind of crowdsourcing sites covering like- this industry? There was some. Uh, there was one back in 2006, I think, in the UK at the time called IB Talk. So it wasn't the first, probably, but it was one of. I think one of the first. There were there were a lot of little niche communities, and even now, there's like on Reddit, there's this finance subreddit or finance career subreddit. So th- there are other, and then there's like LinkedIn groups and Facebook groups. But in terms of scale, none of them are close to the size of Wall Street Oasis. But I think there were they did exist back then. It was just probably smaller and not as you know. Eventually, they went away. But I, I think one of the first, I'd say, is a fair is a fair statement. Great. 
We kind of touched on this in the espresso shots, but I would love for you, Patrick, Mm -hmm. to help our young listeners better understand what all these different verticals are within the banking and finance industries and what the work is that they can expect to be doing earlier in their careers. And we should also highlight that if you are really interested in getting into this industry, you need to get internships and you need to be thinking about that really by your freshman year because they start recruiting in the summer, right, Patrick? Correct. So even if you can't land the ideal summer internship after your freshman year, if you can get any sort of internship related to finance careers, meaning even if it's at a, let's say you want to get into investment banking eventually, even if you have to take a private wealth management internship where you're just literally doing database work, it's at least something somewhat related. And so I would say that's better than nothing, right? And so that's the key is just try to get something to start building your resume to show that you actually made the effort to network and to have an internship in a related field, right? So something related to finance. So if you're, and by the time your junior summer, <clears throat> excuse me, rolls around, if you don't have any internships or any re- relevant internships around finance, it's going to be incredibly difficult because typically by the time you're in your junior summer, that's when you're interning for an investment bank, for example, and they typically hire 90 plus percent of their incoming class through those internship classes. You know, obviously, if you're not getting into those internships, it makes it incredibly difficult to get those you know, few remaining seats. Okay. So let's rewind just a teeny bit and sure. start like painting the picture here of the various verticals. You mentioned investment banking. So yes. investment banking and please continue. Sure. sure. So investment banking, you can think of typically when you say investment banking, it is what's called the sell side. So you're basically selling advice. You're selling advice to large corporations. So let's say, for example, Uber just went public. They did an IPO. They hired an investment bank to give to advise them on that IPO and to help them bring those shares public to sell a part of the company to the public. So that's that's an example of one service that an investment bank will offer to its clients. The others is like a merger and acquisition. So an investment bank will be hired to help a company purchase another company, or it'll, it'll be hired by a company to sell a specific division of that company. And so they'll, they'll run a whole sales process and try to get all the buyers into a frenzy so they bid really high. <laughs> and then the company that hired that bank is happy because they get good return on, the, on that sale. So you can think of investment banking largely as the sell side. And that's, that's what people mean when they say the sell side. You're you're being you're basically selling advice. You're almost like a consultant. Whereas on, on the buy side is another side of finance where you're doing a lot of the analysis and the research and the, you're actually doing the buying of the securities or the companies to make an investment. Investment banks do have arms that do this, but when you say buy side, you typically are referring to what's called asset management. So asset what is asset management? It means you're managing assets. So you're buying and selling stocks and bonds and all these things for either large institutions or for, you know, high net worths or your, your high net worth individuals or for just mom and pop brokerages, right? So that's asset management. Another example of buy side is private equity. Private equity, what are you doing? You're buying private companies. So again, you're buying them, right? You're in a, you have a, fund, a pool of money that your founders raised. You use chunks of that money to go buy other companies. So you're still on the buy side. Or a hedge fund, instead of buying private companies, you're typically buying public companies in the stock market. So you're buying stocks either long or you're betting against them short, or you're buying options on those stocks. So you're buying like an option to buy these shares in three months, for example. So in other words, buy side, you're making actual investment decisions that can impact whether your firm or your fund makes money or loses money. Sell side, you're typically selling your advice for other companies to either sell divisions, go IPO, or 
you're selling like equity research, stuff like that, research of specific industries. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. What about the management consulting, real estate, and I guess you already covered sales and trading? Yeah. So sales and trading is a, you can think of sales and trading almost like a toll booth inside the investment bank where they're collecting for hedge fund. So some of their clients of the investment bank will be like a hedge fund and they'll do trades through the investment bank. So the investment bank serves almost like a clearinghouse of the trades and the sales and trading arm will typically like take a little fraction of the trades that are coming through there. So they're collecting like pennies on each trade. (laughs) And why Uh, do they do that? Why don't they just do it directly? They did have direct trading arms. It's called proprietary trading desks. That was largely, I think, outlawed with the Dodd-Frank Act after 2008 because banks had huge losses because they were betting like in the, the financial crisis. And so they did have those direct bets and directional bets. But I think rightly so, government said, wait a second, why are these investment banks that are critical to the financial stability of our system allowed to take these large directional bets, if it goes against them, things can go really wrong for all financial system if all these banks go bankrupt, right? And so that's why we had to bail them out and, and all that other really ugly stuff that happened in 2008, 2009. So the answer is they can, and I think they do take directional bets in, in other ways. But for the most part, the banks themselves are kind of serving as, you can think of it as like a toll booth or a clearinghouse where they're, they're just facilitating the liquidity in the market. They're helping other firms like asset managers and hedge funds actually do the trading. Okay. So that's the sales and trading side. You asked me about... Um, real estate and management consulting. Yeah. So real estate is another super broad term. So real estate investment banking would just be, you'd be selling your advice to like real estate companies, real estate private equity, buy sites, you'd be actually making investments into real estate assets. So just like normal private equity, but just real, real estate focused. Mm-hmm. And then the other corporate finance is another broad term, but typically it's you can think of it, especially entry level of like a financial analyst coming in and there's like FLDP programs where they're kind of given a rotation through the entire corporation in like accounting and strategy and operations to basically see how the whole firm works, you know, and decide where would be kind of a good future for them. So typically they'll be put through like a two-year rotational program and then they can decide which one they like the best or the firm will say, hey, we really want you here working with this group. That's typically the way it works. And management Mm -hmm. consulting? Management consulting is very top heavy in terms of the firms. You can think of it closest to investment banking in terms of like it's pure consulting, whereas the investment banks are often hired for their advice and consult. It's, it is a type of consulting. They're often paid in terms of like a percentage of the, of the service they're given. So if like if they complete a transaction, they're given like a half a percent or a percent of the transaction value, whereas consulting is often brought in for longer term projects to help facilitate like a transition. So let's say, oh, here's a good example. I don't know who XYZ brought, helped bring Uber public, right? Mm-hmm. And then Uber says, okay, great. We're public. Thank you, bank. Goodbye. Uh, we want to hire McKinsey, Bain, or BCG consultant to help us with this new technology implementation that's going to help us improve our customer support. Right. And so they would say, we want to hire Oliver Wyman because they are the specialists in this type of software or whatever our technology implementation. So that's one thing they would hire like a management consultant to come in. Or Uber would say, you know, this is really bad. We need to talk to McKinsey about our strategy because we know driverless cars are going to be critical for us to, to be financially viable. How can we reduce our cash burn over the next five years? Because we know it's at least five years out in order to remain like a viable business and not go out of business. <laughs> I'm speaking. The, so like they may bring a McKinsey in to help them with the strategic kind of analysis of the entire like driverless industry or how they're going to compete with Lyft and, and how to survive stuff like that. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. That was really, really helpful. Have you found in the 15, actually, it's more like 20 plus years that you've been in this world, there are certain personalities that do better in different tracks? Oh, absolutely. Yes. This is very broadly speaking. I mean, for all of them, you have to be pretty much type A driven and willing to work long hours. It varies, however. So investment banking tends to be the longest and most grueling hours. So to survive there, you have to have a very positive attitude, a lot of energy and be willing to take direction and and just, yeah, just to be able to maintain a positive outlook when you're getting worked and not sleeping a lot (laughs) when you have a pillow at your desk. Whereas, you know, consulting people who tend to travel a lot and people who enjoy more kind of the strategy softer side a little bit more tend to prefer consulting because if you're at a top consulting firm, some of the work is incredibly interesting uh, because you're getting to work with top corporations and kind of shaping the way they shape the industry. So people who are a little bit more kind of cerebral in terms Mm -hmm. of how I think maybe you would gravitate more and less analytical, maybe grab a little bit more towards consulting. And then you get like the sales, you get like the trading and the hedge fund side and the asset management, typically much more like the poker player, the person who likes the adrenaline and the risk and the, the always on mentality where, you know, the movements in the market can change their mood, <laughs> but, but they can deal with that stress, you know, and they, they're willing to deal with it and they want to learn how to gain an edge in the market. So, so one thing we haven't touched on is mm-hmm. why people go into this industry. Obviously, yes. And certainly, I'm sure in each one of those verticals, there are some really interesting aspects to it. But let's just say with investment banking, we've now heard over and over again how incredibly grueling it is. Is it really about the compensation? Is that mostly what attracts people to to go into investment banking and to suffer (laughs) for Mm -hmm. those first couple of years and maybe even longer? I don't think it's anything to do with the compensation. I think it's all about building up a platform for career and for and people who are very risk averse. So someone who's a top student at a top school and they don't really know what they want to do, investment banking is a very safe option. It continues the path of incredibly hard working, incredibly hard work, going to be successful, going to make money. And it doesn't force them to stop and be like, hey, is this really what I want to do? So that's why you get a lot of kids burning out a few years into investment banking, they say, I really don't want to do this. Because I think a lot of them never stopped and thought to themselves, like, well, does this really interest me? They just kind of followed the path that a lot of their you know, fellow students did. So I think it's tough. It's, it's one of those things where the reason it's so attractive, I think, is because people see it for the amazing exit opportunities it has. So if you do do the two years in investment banking, oftentimes you can break into private equity, which I would argue is incredibly interesting work because you're dealing with like actually buying and selling companies. You're, you're, you're on the front lines. You're not just advising. You're actually helping make the decisions. You're meeting with CEOs. You're evaluating industries, looking at companies and all that. So I think private equity has been put up on such a pedestal and banking is seen as the, the most kind of proven path to get there. That's oftentimes why people are like, investment banking or bust. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for school. Is there so. another aspect to it as well that could be kind of like, why do people compete in an Ironman, right? Why do they have to run a marathon and then the 100 mile biking? And is there a piece of like, you know, you get a lot of respect because they're like, oh, man, he can suck it or she can really suck it up. Yeah. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, I think. And that's why oftentimes it's the culture of mess making. It's, it's 
very difficult to get out because the seniors often went through that. And there's been a lot more bad press for the industry over the last, I'd say, five years or so. With There's even been some deaths in the industry that now with with social media, what it is. Um, we had an intern die last year over at Lincoln. We had another intern die several years ago over Bank of America. And, and typically it's after like a hundred hour week. And you know, they either end up at the hospital or, you know, just horrible stories. And so, but now they're getting a lot more bad press about it because it's just that's the nature of it nowadays. So there are being policies instituted in there, but it's it's slow on the uptake. And I, and a lot of the boutique firms, I call them elite boutiques, they still work their kids incredibly hard. And, and we can see it. We have the data um, in terms of hours worked. You know, it's maybe dropping a couple hours a week, but we're still talking 80 plus hours on average. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a little bit of just hard driving type A personalities just want that challenge and they kind of live on that challenge. But I think it's also a lot of it's just because they don't really know what else to do. I mean, I can talk personally, instead of speaking for everyone else, I was at Williams College doing an economics degree. I heard about it my I think junior year. I was super late to the game. Luckily, it was 2002. So it wasn't, and it would be game over if, if it was 2019. But you know, back then, they were recruiting a little bit more of a normal timeline. So I had a shot and I, I made it in, but not because investment banking and finance was like something I'd been dreaming of. It was more like, oh, this is looks interesting and it's I'm gonna be able to support myself, get some, you know, get good pay and be able to live on my own, not depend on my parents anymore. It was more of that. Okay. Um, yeah. So what do you think? I mean, sitting where you are right now with this amazing expansive knowledge that you have of of these industries, for our young listeners who maybe are wondering at this point if they mm-hmm. should consider a job on Wall Street, what advice do you have for them? Who should consider that job and why? I think the people who are willing to sacrifice some early part of their 20s to have an incredibly steep learning curve, develop some useful skills and challenge themselves should consider it. People who really value work-life balance, value their relationships, maybe they're, in a, maybe they're already married or maybe they're in a long-term relationship and they want to keep that. <laughs> think twice about it. There are other, I'm talking about the most high intense positions on Wall Street. There, there are other jobs like a corporate finance position at FLDP that are still very difficult and rigorous, but they're not um, to the extreme where your personal relationships can suffer. So they, you know, they'll be working you 50 to 60 hours a week, which sounds like a lot, but in comparison to, to investment banking, it's actually a cakewalk. You really kind of do the research into the specific firm as well that you're interviewing for. Try to talk to people that have left the firm recently and try to get a true sense of what's the culture like, what's, you know, is there FaceTime or are the senior people that are working there, are they in the office at 8 p.m. at night, every night, or are they home with their family? And that'll give you a good sense of what it's like. How can they find the people who've left recently? Um, well, you could do a search quickly on past companies on LinkedIn. So you just search past companies and you can type in you know, XYZ company and you can look up analysts or associates. You can look up past titles, I believe, and past companies on LinkedIn. So it's it shouldn't be too hard. You'll be able to pull up like, you know, 10 to 20 people and just sending a short, quick message of, hey, I'm I'm looking to start a position at da da da. I would love, you know, five, five to ten minutes to, you know, pick your brain about your experience there. And a lot of people are so excited just to get the position that it's kind of hard to do that. They kind of have to just take take the job and for what it is. And if you're in the lucky seat where you have multiple offers. Definitely try to do that research fast <laughs> and get before those offers explode. But it could save you a lot of a lot of heartache. Oh, I am sure. You have so many resources on Wall Street Oasis. Could you kind of walk us through 
what our listeners will find when they go to wallstreetoasis.com and how it can help them in their job search or, or just in their professional journeys in finance? Sure. I mean, I think to start off, you can always just go to the financial dictionary, the frequently asked questions to try and get a sense of each specific industry. You could just dive straight into the, the content as well. Like some of the more interesting discussions on my homepage, always the recent discussions, you can dive right in and just start reading. Or if you kind of want to get primers, you can do that. You can go to each of the forum containers under, you know, if you click the little quick links, IBPEHF, that stands for investment banking, private equity hedge funds. If you just click on those, there tends to be a, uh, like a hall of fame thread near the top, typically sticky there that you could go in there to kind of get your your feet kind of grounded in terms of like, what is investment banking, what is sales and trading, what is private equity, what is hedge fund and you know, that type of stuff. So if you feel like, okay, now I understand what everyone's saying, what are all these kind of abbreviations? I noticed that you have different courses that mm-hmm. offer tips on things like what to expect when you're in an interview, like the behavioral things that they're going to be looking at. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? So it's like the expression on someone's face, their body language. Is that what you're getting at? Yes, but also the behavioral or fit questions specifically around softer side. So not so basically the opposite of the technical. So technical questions would be something like what happens when depreciation goes up to the three statements when depreciation goes up by $10. So that's an example of a technical question. You'd have to walk them through the three statements and know some accounting in terms of how that flows through. A behavioral fit question is more like, tell me about a time when you disagreed with superior and what did you do? And people actually often underestimate these questions. There's a way to prepare for them specifically around looking at your past experiences and making sure you have set stories that you can pull from. So I tend to say you want at least five or six set stories that highlight either a struggle, a time where you failed, how you overcame that, a time when you were working like crazy hours or had an incredibly stressful time and struggled. I think being able to pull from those types of stories for different behavioral questions and having those prepared can leave a great impression because you're you're just ready and have kind of your whole story kind of wrapped up. I just find that incredible. So you know, just because of all the crowdsourcing you've done and because of your experience, and then of course, reading what so many of your subscribers... Oh, we, have, we have over 10,000 interview questions like across like all these industries, like they're there. So, And you can get it for free. All you have to do is once you have an interview, you just put in yours and you get it a free month yourself. So that's how we continually source it. As you say, hey, you want access? Just give us yours. So you had a phone interview. That's enough. Just tell us what they asked you. And what was the most difficult question? So we have this huge database of, of questions. The interview courses try to distill that down into a digestible form because obviously you don't have time to go through thousands of questions. So there's patterns, right? There's certain questions you know you're going to get or are most likely going to get. And I would argue it's less about going through that and knowing it. It's more about practicing. So a lot of people think, oh, if I read this interview guide and I know the right answer, well, oftentimes it's not delivering the right answer. It's delivering the right answer in the right way. So it's not, do you say the right technical question? It's the thought process is, do you know why, why that's the case? Or like the behavioral question, did you come across as genuine when you were delivering that? Or did you sound like a robot that had memorized the answer? And that really is what makes the difference between somebody who gets the callback and gets the offer versus somebody who's passed. And this uh, is why I'm guessing buying a session or two 
Yeah, even just mentors is even just even just a half hour. I always recommend it if you have an an important interview coming up because it's one thing to go through a a self study program. It's another thing to actually have a professional listen to you and give you honest feedback instead of like your college friend who was like, "Yeah, that sounded good, man." (laughs) 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 Or yeah, you know, like yeah, I guess that sounded good. Yeah, okay, you sound good. Yeah, that was polished. Good job, you know. Whereas like especially the professional where they're going to read through a lot of the bullshit. They can read through a lot of this stuff if it's not genuine or if it's kind of a soft answer, meaning like they're going to drill down on that. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be like, what do you mean by that? Be specific. You can quickly find yourself flustered where you thought your answer was so smooth. (laughs) Where if like you had actually just spoken with somebody, they would have called you on that before They're the real deal. So here's a little bit of a curveball for you. Do you have like, what would you say are the top five interview tips that you would have to offer our listeners that they should be prepared to answer that are relevant for just yeah. about any of those tracks? Yeah, very easy. So the first one is walk me through your resume. This is universally about 60 to 70% of all interviews start with this. So if you're not ready for this one, just forget about it. Just walk out the door. <laughs> okay. And so, but like it, it shouldn't be something where you're guessing on how long to spend on this. Like you should have a, a succinct a one to three minute kind of summary of your resume where you're walking through each one. It doesn't have to be like, you're not telling them your life story. You're kind of just going, I grew up in this area. I went to this school because of this. I majored in this. It really interested me in this because of this course. I ended up joining this club and da, 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 da. And then you kind of just leave it. Let them ask you questions. But you have to have that spiel, that one to three minute spiel down. And it, sh- it, has, it should be succinct. It should be tight. It shouldn't be a rambling. You go off on some tangent because you're not prepared. I would have failed that first one. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Me too. And I did. I did fail it multiple times until I, you know, my 20th interview until I started getting, had enough practice failing in real interviews <laughs> before I got good. But there's that. I, the second thing I would say is why this industry? So have a very good answer in terms of why this industry. Try to make it not canned. A lot of people are not genuine about this. No, you didn't grow up reading the Wall Street Journal when you were five years old. Don't try to pretend like you did. Overselling is a big problem. So if you weren't the co-president of XYZ club. And you know, you don't don't have to pretend like they know they everyone understands the game. If you undersell, but you have good credentials, and you you seem like a humble but kind person, I think you're going to get a lot further than if you try to oversell your experience. Quick summary. So walk with your resume, why this industry and then specifically why this firm. Mm -hmm. I've done research more ideally more than just Google, if you can speak to somebody at the firm before your interview, huge points because you say, you know, I spoke with analyst XYZ, you know, John Smith at, in the XYZ group, and he, he expressed how there's really an emphasis on the fact that you guys really value your, your global footprint and da da da. And you do a lot of cross border transactions because of that. I found that really, you know, that really interesting because, you know, I've traveled a lot to blah, blah, blah. So just something as a college kid, they're not going to expect you to be like having done, you have no transaction experience on your resume or very limited because you're an intern. So it's more about are you knowledgeable? Do you speak well? And do you seem like you're a good person? Like, can you pass the airport test? They are protests being if they were stuck, delayed in the airport with you for three hours, would they enjoy the conversation with you? Gotcha. <laughs> That's probably it. In terms of five, like a couple more, it would probably be, you know, your strengths. That's just giving you an opening to talk about the things that are most relevant to the job and why those are your strengths and how they match up really well. You should always go back to after giving your strength, you should always say, and that's why I'm interested in this position specifically and tying it back instead of just saying, and that's my strengths, you know, weaknesses. I typically you want to give a weakness that is something that is believable, but not 
so critical to the job. So for example, public speaking, I think is a great one. Most people are fear public speaking. And as an analyst, you're not going to really have to do much public speaking. They may bring you to a client meeting or two, but it's not like they're going to be putting you up <laughs> for a presentation. So I think it's okay to say, you know, I'm working on my public speaking skills. I feel like I have some room to improve there, but definitely see it as a weakness of mine right now. I also think, and you alluded to this, Patrick, you said something about they're going to ask you about a time you failed mm-hmm. and have that story at the ready. Yeah, for sure. You can talk about how you never didn't make the team, how you you know got a bad grade in your midterm, and then you, how you, you did well in the final to get a B plus instead of a C. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Did extra work. I'm um, just something that you can highlight that you have some tenacity and you have some grit. I think is always good. Well, we know that you have both of those, and I want to flash back now for you, Patrick, mm-hmm. to get to sort of the kernel of what inspired you to found the precursor to Wall Street Oasis? Sure. I think I had an interesting start to my career. So I did two years in investment banking at Rothschild in New York. I worked very long hours, learned a ton, and ended up making the successful transition to private equity into what was my dream job, which at the time I had moved back to Boston, which is where I'm from. I was super excited. And then I ended up getting fired within, I think, four or five months of that dream job. And At the time, I didn't really know what was going on. It was very much disorienting, huge hit to my confidence. And when I was, and at that point, I was actually a really good interviewer. So I was getting to final rounds and getting, basically getting offers in Boston for other private equity jobs. But I kept getting the offers pulled last second and the point where a recruiter was saying, I think you're blackballed from private equity in Boston. The reason being because I wouldn't sign a waiver release form for my first firm because I didn't understand why they were firing me in the first place. So that was a very kind of rude wake up call to me at 24 years old that it didn't really matter so much that you can just put your head down and things would take care of themselves. If you ended up in a situation that was outside your control, you could still be in a bad situation. So I think that kind of made me feel less in control and probably was one of the primary reasons I think I ended up starting something on the side. I ended up getting back into private equity in New York at a great fund four or five months later. So it wasn't the end of the world. It was not like I was unemployed for a year, but it was it was a scary time. It was a scary time. And I feel like it was probably one of the reasons when I was at that new fund, I didn't feel super comfortable still. And so I wanted to start something new. Well, we're going to get into that experience <laughs> that you had at New Heritage Capital mm-hmm. when you were fired after four months in one of our final questions. So I'm going to sure. put a watch this space here for a moment. (laughs) So you decided, was it really like, I need an insurance program? I want to have like a safety net. I need to start a business. Is that kind of what was the motivation? Yeah, I think it was that, that kind of fear in the back of my head that that it could happen again. But there was also, I think, an article that kind of prompted me. I think it was like a Forbes 30 under 30 that I read where it was, I think it was, I don't know how many, 30 entrepreneurs under 30 years old that had started their own businesses and it was profiling them. And I remember reading through that article. I think I was like at the office late when I was reading through that article and found it really interesting that a lot of them were kind of smaller businesses that were not, you know, the next Googles or the next Ubers, or, but just smaller kind of interesting niche businesses. And I thought to myself, I could do some of these or why, why shouldn't I start one of these? And so I ended up on my way home that day, ended up calling a good friend of mine who was uh, getting his PhD at MIT at the time, a good high school friend of mine. He said, you know, I want to start something and I have no computer skills. And I know this is some working full time. The only thing I could really do is something virtual or, you know, online. I was thinking of maybe starting some sort of community 
And the only thing I really know at this point, since I've only been in private equity for less than a year, is investment banking. So what do you think? And he thought it was a good idea. He thought it was, you know, I told him about the monkeys and some ideas we had. He thought it was funny. And so, yeah, that's how it kind of was born. So what did it look like when it first started? What was the site? Oh, it was horrible. It was... <laughs> <laughs> this was back in 2006, right? So it was, I think it was a monkey hanging over the words ibankingoasis.com with like a banana in his hand. Um, and it was like the ugliest colors you've ever seen. But it worked, you know, it worked. And we had the bananas since the beginning. So it was funny. It was like, hey, collect 10 bananas and you get free access to this compensation report. So there's a lot of things that still exist today. So we had done like a, a survey and like our kind of our carrot to get people in the door as a registered member was to this this compensation report, and it worked. People would sign up and start, you know, having the, all these discussions. And it was very interesting to me that, like, from nothing, we quickly got to like a hundred users, five hundred users, and even though it was bringing in close to zero dollars, it was very exciting to me, just because I could see the activity and it was clearly helping people. There was value being created there, like there was actual professionals on there answering questions. It wasn't just me, and you could see that people actually enjoyed it kind of being able to anonymously banter back and forth with other people in the industry. So yeah, kind of, it's crazy to think back then there wasn't, you know, there was no Instagram. There was no, I didn't think there was like the iPhone had just come out or it was about, that wasn't even out. (laughs) (laughs) So what happened with your website that allowed you to quit your private equity job at Tailwind Capital in June of 08 to go all in with your business? Well, see, that's the thing. People think I went all in with my business. The the reality is I'm a total wimp and I always hedge my bets. So what I actually did was, yes, I quit, but that was when I'd already gotten into my MBA program at Wharton. So I already knew I was going to business school. So I knew I had a two-year runway to try and make this a real business. By the time 2008 rolled around, the site had gotten enough traffic where I think we were doing like a million visits a month or something like that. So it was already at a pretty decent scale. We were still making almost no money though. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think they were making like $40,000 a year on like AdSense revenue or something like a total joke. But there was idea. I know I had idea. I knew we were getting paid very little for the traffic that was there. I knew there was ways to monetize it better. Just I didn't have the time given that I was still working. So I knew business school would, would offer me that time to, to really work on it. So like when I was in business school for those two years, really my life was business about 50%, classes about 15% and then social life the rest. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I, I could say I went to all the, I went to most classes, but I, I can tell you I didn't study the hardest for the exam. <laughs> so I was more focused on the business and there was no recruiting. I, I said to myself, I'm not going to recruit. I'm going to work on the business full time. And Wharton was incredibly supportive. I joined the mentor initiation program I won several grants as well for the business. Even in the classroom itself, like some of the entrepreneurial classes, my classmates would help me like analyze the business and then we'd use it as a project in terms of like user attrition, all some really interesting data from it. So it was cool because I got to work on the business, have really much smarter people around me at school giving me advice in terms of like, here's how you need to do online ads. And here's, you know, you need to join an ad network that specializes in finance to get much higher rates. And, and then we released a... Um, interview course. And that started off really well. That started that whole line of business. But yeah, it's, it was one of those things where we were like, when did you make that massive leap? And it was, it was really with, with the protection of being at school, right? So um, training wheels on. I had training wheels. Exactly. So, <laughs> so, you know, worst case scenario, let's say after a couple of years, it wasn't making enough to support me. Although by the end of that first summer, I knew I'd be fine. I knew I was going to do it full time because it was probably at that point bringing in 80 to a hundred thousand a year. Nice. Which for me was a pretty massive pay cut compared to private equity, but it was still plenty for me to live happily 
and have that freedom was the most important thing to me and be able to travel. And so one of my dreams was to, I'm going to go down to South America after I graduate and live in South America for a year. That's what I did. Oh, that is so awesome. (laughs) So I have three final time for coffee questions for you, Patrick. And this next question is kind of a new question that I'm asking my guests. And that is the role, if any, that serendipity may have played in your professional life. I think there's a lot of that. I mean, I think back to 2000, you know, when I was graduating in 2002, recruiting in 2001, right after 9-11, I could have easily not had a job in investment banking. It, Rothschild was I think, the last firm that came onto campus. And I think, you know, I was one of 12 analysts in their New York office. You know, I just think back to like, what would have happened if I didn't get that job? Would I have been unemployed after I graduated? What kind of career would I have been in? You know what I mean? It wouldn't even exist. Wall Street Oasis would definitely not exist. <laughs> Maybe it would be in some other form. Who knows? I think it. there's a lot of luck. There, I've started other form-based sites. I started a law one back in 2011 that went nowhere. So even knowing what I knew for five years, having run Wall Street Oasis, I tried to recreate the magic and couldn't do it. It just goes to show you that a lot of it's timing, a lot of it's luck. A lot of it's just finding almost like catching the right wave at the right time has, has a lot to do with where people end up. I truly believe that. Well, thanks for sharing that. And now we get to go back to one of the seminal moments in your professional life when you were at New Heritage Capital, your first job in private it's equity. Funny, it's, called, it's called New Heritage. It used to be called Heritage Partners, but and now they rebranded because it is <laughs> for What is for it all- called? It's called, it was called Heritage Partners. Now it's called New Heritage. But yeah, that's- Got we it. Can ex- why they rebranded, but (laughs) yes, yes, exactly. New and improved. Yes. So this is obviously a time in your professional life when you struggled, you were fired. You and I chatted about this experience before we did this interview. And you shared with me, as you just mentioned a little while ago, that you were really clueless. They did not give you any insight into what caused them to fire you after four months, but you Mm. later learned. So could you share with us what happened, how you persevered, and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process? Give a little background. So, you know, I was in investment banking at Rothschild again, working incredibly long hours. I think the transition from investment banking to private equity is often difficult for analysts because you go from an environment where you're basically told when you can go to the bathroom to one, if you're going to a small middle market fund or a smaller fund to where you're given very little direction. And it's expected that you know what to do. So if you don't know what you're doing or know that you have to have monitoring these portfolio companies or building these certain models and you don't have that financial modeling back, you know, you don't feel comfortable. And I did. It was just more of I wasn't sure where to jump in, where to jump out and where I fit. And it can be a very tough transition. That being said, there was a little bit of that, I think, in terms of if I'm being honest with myself, but it wasn't for lack of work ethic, right? I would have stayed 80 hours a week if I had to to keep that job and put in the long hours. It was more just you don't get the mentorship, I think, that you get at a larger firm. So my first review comes around, I think it was October. And I remember this vividly because I think it was when the Red Sox won their first championship after 80, 80 something years. And it was right after that. And I think it was like early November, or late October, or, or maybe right after, right around the holidays. And it was a first review. I remember it was less than six months in. And at that point, I thought it was going to be a review with a stub bonus, stub bonus being a partial year bonus. And I remember coming in there and there was like a lawyer at the table and another one of my direct managers and like one of the founders there. And it was kind of like, you know, we don't think it's working out. We'd like you to sign this form. 
blah, blah, and kind of pushed a paper over. And I'm, I'm sitting there like just total deer in the headlights, like what is going on right now? <laughs> I kind of like, well, is there a specific reason? You know, I understand something I did or something I said. And I said, well, I just don't think the fit is good. I think investment banking is probably better for you. And to me, it was really kind of surprising. In retrospect, I probably should have seen more red flags, but given how naive I was at 24, I just didn't pick up on some of the red flags in terms of like, they would bring me into like an office and be like, you know, you need to do this, that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, I get it. Like, you want me to do this more, right? And they're like, yeah, and I would go do it. But specifically, they gave me nothing. And then I, I really didn't feel like signing the paper to get $10,000 was worth it even at that point. Like, it was kind of like more of just be trying to figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I don't, this $10,000 just is meaningless. My career is a lot more important to me. So it was one of those things where I said, look, I'm, they, you know, they try to make it an easier transition. Hey, look, you can work here through January and say you work here through January. You know, you should try to find your next transition. So it was a very awkward time I was interviewing, but because I wasn't signing that form, I felt like they didn't feel comfortable giving any sort of reference. And I didn't want to sign it because there was no guarantee that, and how, what are they going to say, right? In terms right. of, I signed it like, yes, he just started like, and now he's leaving. We don't know why or like there was none of there was no easy excuse. So and, and I didn't know I was in the dark. So I didn't really know why either. So it made my interviews incredibly difficult. I was able to do pretty well in the interviews, simply because, you know, I just said, I think it was just a fit issue. I but you know, I'm a hard worker, you can call all my references here. I'm I know financial modeling extremely well. I'm really passionate about this. So I'd get close, but then they would call. And I think all they would say is, yes, he worked here. And then to them, that was like a super red flag, right? Yeah. Like, what did you do? Are you a child yeah, molester? What, exactly. Like, what happened? Like, why? You know, what did he do? So to me, it was a very bad experience. Luckily, I had somebody, um, a guy in my analyst class at Rothschild back in New York vouch for me at his fund in New York. And he got me an interview there. And then gave me an offer. And I was working the new fund in New York. I had to go back to New York. I didn't want to go back to New York. I had to go back to New York to kind of keep my career on track. Mm. I mean, move back. And so having done that, I remember just still being in the dark. What, what happened there? Like what was going on? And then I remember an article. I remember getting an alert or an article like a year later about some limited partners and there being a huge fallout at the fund where the partners were pointing fingers at each other that the deal he did was the one that went bankrupt or the deal he did and just like the LPs, the limited partners that gave them money just being really angry over them just throwing each other under the bus. And the fact of the matter is like every month that passed, the team went from I think 20 investment professionals eventually down all the way to four because they were going through a very bad performance in terms of the fund. I think mm-hmm. they had a very bad investments. And so from that standpoint, it like all clicked and made sense. And I said, that's, that's what was happening. Like, they knew the performance was really bad on a couple of these investments. They knew that they had to reduce, they weren't going to be able to fundraise or fundraising wasn't going really well. So they knew that they didn't have the, the overhead to cover this many people. So they had to cut it significantly. They just weren't forthcoming with that, which I think is really kind of messed up. Although I'm sure they were also afraid they didn't want word getting out. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I understand from both sides. Like the last thing they want to do is tell me, a new associate, hey, yeah, sorry, we're struggling. So we're going to be cutting staff by 60, 70%. And since you're the first in, you're the first out. (laughs) Or last in, you're the first out. You know, worried that I would go talk and say to save my own, but talk to other funds and be like, yeah, they're struggling. Yeah. People can start smelling blood in the water, right? Exactly. Exactly. So I get it. It's just... Well, I'm sure your confidence took a real hit. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it was just very rattling. And I think it it was one of those experiences where given that I did so well at Rothschild, given that they wanted me to stay and I was I had been putting in such long hours and had been kind of so useful there 
it was a very tough kind of swing of circumstances, you know, change of circumstance where you go from being, you know, them ask, they literally asked me before I left trial, what, what would it take you to stay? Just name your number. Like literally that's what they were saying. And I didn't want money, right? I was just like, just, I need my life. <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I, I did not re- name a number, right? I was not going to say it, it would have been way too high for them to pay. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> the point is I, I really, yeah, I was I was in a in a tough place there, and I, I remember after getting my I think my third offer pulled, I remember just thinking like, wow, what is, what am I going to do? I had to like broaden my reach. I have to look to New York. I can't just stay in Boston. So, so what was the lesson that you would say you learned from that experience? Relationships are everything. Relationships are everything. I wouldn't have that second job if it hadn't been for that uh, analyst in my in my class. So if I wasn't friendly, if I wasn't kind to my fellow analysts, and they didn't like me, I would have not have had a job. But because they liked me, because because he felt like I would make him look good and I'd be a good hire, he went out of his way to say, look, I don't know what happened to his other friend, but this kid works really hard, put himself out there. And so that that to me is everything. And that's typically how jobs, that's how people get their first, second, third, fourth, fifth. You, eventually, it's, your network is going to come into play. And that's right there. It really saved me. And that was early in my career. There you go. So Final time for coffee question, Patrick. Mm-hmm. If you could go back to Williams and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Really tough question. I think I would I would push myself to learn more hard skills around like financial modeling, around like tech, around programming, stuff that is going to be more kind of future proof rather than theory. I mean, I went to a liberal arts background, so it's easy for me to say because a lot of the academic, the courses I took were very theoretical and I did take, you know, math and all that stuff. But I think even doing some stuff on the side over the summer that trained me more in, in hard skills would have served me well. It would have made a lot less painful transition for sure. Not to say that the liberal arts education isn't wonderful and it didn't, it definitely helped me learn how to solve problems and work well with people. But I think having a little bit of a taste of that other, that other side in the hard skills would have made that transition easier. Okay, fair enough. Patrick, thank you so much for making time for coffee with me today. Sorry to cut you off. I got my little spiel here. (laughs) But I just want to say, gosh, I mean, you are such a lovely, lovely, bright, incredibly entrepreneurial guy. I see some similarities between what I'm trying to build here at Time for Coffee and what you have already built. And it is just so remarkable, like the Taj Mahal of, uh, no, of resources. Uh, it really I can is. Tell you, uh, but I can tell you, you know, we struggle with our YouTube channels, a baby and our podcasts are small. And, you know, we, we're all there's always more you can do, right? Like, as you know, as an entrepreneur, there's always you're always trying to strive. So once you get to be a bigger size, you're, you're going to be like, oh, now you have a bigger team and you have to support them. <laughs> so it's like it's, you'll never be satisfied. And you know, I think it's important to enjoy that journey, you know? Yes. And I do. I mean, this is not about me. This is about you. I just want to say I have so much respect and admiration for what you have built and what you have done and the resources that you are providing so many people of all ages who are interested in the world of finance. And I'm just incredibly grateful to you for your having made the time to share your wisdom with me and the Time for Coffee community. And I wish you continued success in all that you do. 
No, same to you as well. I'm excited to watch from afar, see how you do. And I think, I think you're on the right track, so keep it up. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.